the sustainable development goals certainly need a new impetus because at the moment we're seeing the trends on just about every every single one of those goals move in the, the wrong direction. Democracy in Practice series by Club de Madrid gathers the voices of democratic former presidents and prime ministers who leverage their individual and collective leadership experience to strengthen inclusive democratic practice today to better deliver towards the well-being of people around the world. Welcome to Club de Madrid's podcast series, Democracy in Practice. You are listening to the third episode of this series, which commemorates Club de Madrid's 20th anniversary and reflects on the challenges to democracy that the organization has addressed since its foundation. My name is Susana Malcora, and I am the former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Argentina Dean of the IE School of Global and Public Affairs and an advisor to Club de Madrid. And I will be your host today. In this conversation, we will discuss social inclusion with Helen Clark, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand and a member of Club de Madrid. Helen Clark was the second woman to become Prime Minister in New Zealand. Throughout her three successive terms, she pursued policies to make New Zealand a sustainable nation and to tackle climate change. Her government also undertook many initiatives to develop New Zealand's welfare state. In 2009, she also became the first female administrator of the United Nations Development Program, UNDP, Helen Clark continues to be very active and championing sustainable development and gender equality. Welcome, Prime Minister Clark. It's a pleasure to talk to you, my former colleague and friend, Helen. Thank you, and great to catch up with you, Susanna, on this podcast. Um, Helen, you have been a very active voice in the dire health and economic consequences of COVID-19 for the world's poor. The World Bank estimates that up to 150 million people could fall into extreme poverty as the pandemic continues to run rampant in developing countries. I should say also in the developed world. But let's talk about the, the developing world in particular. The shock we have all experienced since the beginning of 2020 has amplified inequalities of wealth, race, and gender. This has led Oxfam to dub COVID as the inequality virus. How can we change this course? What are, in your view, the main principles to guide an inclusive recovery from COVID-19? Many big questions there, and uh, I won't uh, digress into spending the last year on the independent panel for pandemic preparedness and response uh, because we went deep into uh, what happened, uh, how it could have been stopped 
why it wasn't stopped and what we need to do for the, the future. And some of those recommendations for the future also point to uh, the course that needs to be followed with the recovery at the point when we can recover from uh, the pandemic. We're clearly not there. The pandemic is still raging. Uh, I saw Dr. Tedros, Director General of WHO, just in the last few days saying that deaths in Africa had spiked 80% uh, in the last month. This is still a runaway uh, pandemic in, in many parts of the world. But as we look um, towards coming out of the pandemic phase and into a, a different phase of, of, of managing uh, around this virus, which sadly is not about to, uh, to disappear, uh, we need absolutely to be directing our attention to how to build more inclusive societies and economies, and which are also more resilient. And one of the basics for that is universal social protection. And the principle of that is that when the worst strikes, you should not face losing everything. The worst may be a catastrophic health event. It may be an accident for the, the key uh, uh, income earner in, in the household. It could be any, any range of things. But universal basic protection helps to tide people over. Now, the lack of it during the pandemic and around 4 billion people in our world do not have access to basic social protection has made it very hard to maintain basic public health uh, measures like lockdowns because the poor uh, who subsist on day-to-day -day, uh, trading, uh, the most basic microactivities, they have to eat. And unless those systems are there to support them, uh, you can't uh, maintain effective public health measures. So. I would say number one in an inclusive recovery is get universal basic social protection in place. Now, people may say, oh, isn't that unaffordable? Actually, the work that was done for the ILO by the commission headed by uh, former president of Chile, Michelle Bachelet, uh, in a commission on universal basic social protection suggested that an economy could put it in place for around one and a half percent of GDP. And my view is that will be one of the best one and a half percent of GDP ever, ever spent. So that would be my first point. Uh, secondly, on the inclusive recovery, uh, universal health coverage is vital because, again, what it impoverishes families, whether it's in the middle of a pandemic uh, or at any other time, uh, is a catastrophic health expense which there was no way they could have budgeted for. Uh, the poor cannot put money aside for, for, for health. So we, we, we need universal health coverage, which stops people falling over that cliff. Then we need to think of the nature of economic recovery and ideally make it job and livelihood rich uh, so that people have a, a chance of standing on their own feet. Uh, I would also be very much emphasising uh, entrepreneurial activities for women and for young people, uh, for access to uh, skills uh, training, again, emphasising uh, women and youth who tend to be the most disadvantaged uh, in, in the labour market. Uh, and then if we look at a, a broader picture of international cooperation, this is no time for the high-income countries to be cutting their development cooperation. The needs are great out there uh, for the poorest countries whose economies have been have been devastated and will struggle to rebuild anytime soon. So solidarity funding 
uh, whoever it's coming through, whether it's coming through uh, humanitarian organizations like World Food Program, uh, whether it's coming through others like, like UNICEF, whether it's coming through the, the money that the INF's been able to mobilize for fiscal space, whatever the World Bank's been able to do, solidarity funding is absolutely critical now for an inclusive recovery. Thanks, Helen. Let me ask a follow-up to your to your answer. You you put the the universal social protection as the first priority, and I couldn't agree more with you. And it, together with that, or associated to that, is the question of the informal economy, which is very much in link with the lack of universal social protection. They, they, most of the time, they go closely together. And there again, you mentioned youth and, and women. How, how do you see a putting emphasis in all the efforts that are being now developed develop and, and, and the economic programs, both in the developed world and the developing world, to really put focus on, on women and, and, and youth? Because somehow they get lost in, in translation. So... As Hillary Clinton once famously said, uh, investment in gender equality is not only the, the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. Uh, the amount of uh, GDP that economies are missing out on around the world because women aren't enabled to reach their full potential economically is absolutely vast. Uh, so if countries look at the facts as to what they are losing because women aren't able to participate to the same extent and, and as lucratively as men in the economy. It's a no-brainer. You invest in women. Now, investing in women's education, girls' education, absolutely critical. And the multiplier effect of that is so great. A woman with education is not only uh, able uh, more to determine her own future, uh, to contribute to her, her economic uh, well-being as well as to that of her family. But it also goes with uh, other very important uh, developments, and that is the likelihood of a child dying before the age of five reduces as the mother's education uh, goes up. The aspirations of the children that she may have will, will also increase. In other words, there is a virtuous cycle that comes from investing in women and girls' education that, that is having intergenerational effects as well as very positive effects for, for women. So I think the case for this is so strong, both on a rights basis and on, uh, on an economic basis for whole, whole countries. Now, the, the issues with youth, uh, some similarities, but also some additional points uh, one should make. I mean, clearly, young people in general, the more education they have, the more empowered they can be with knowledge uh, to pursue a range of, of, of options for their future. Uh, but if we boil it right down to the, the toughest circumstances in countries which are experiencing a lot of conflict, and that may come from uh, terrorist groups, uh, from high levels of organized crime, you look at who are the foot soldiers for these malign movements by young people. And they're often young people without hope, young people who haven't got education, who have not much prospect of a livelihood. Uh, the criminal and terrorist networks come along. Uh, they can pay a lot more than, you know, hoeing a dusty plot, hoping the rain might come. 
And so investing in youth in a, in a range of societies is absolutely critical to peace and development because youth uh, are such a powerful force for, for good when they're invested in, when they can be educated, when they're able to work, when they can ho have hopes of you know, having a, a home for their family. You take away that hope, you replace it with those who provide a way forward which is damaging for society. So I think we, we really need to focus on how important it is to give young people a stake in the society and the economy. Absolutely right, Helen. But, uh, you know, in, in thinking the recovery, government and international organizations are mobilizing resources at an unprecedented scale. You talk about the fiscal space and how uneven the fiscal space is, but, you know, there is a huge drive to mobilize resources. What is true is that they can do it alone. How do you see the role of the private sector? How do you see the private sector contributing to an inclusive recovery? Well, I think in a number of ways, and again, uh, the government policy settings will be important because they do have an impact on uh, the degree of uh, domestic confidence uh, by the business community and, of course, uh, of consumers. Uh, business community, uh, large and small, will be looking uh, very, very careful at the, the global readout as, as well. You know, pe people are nervous. We've been through the worst uh, you know, economic shock in a very, very long time. And when you're $25 trillion loss over a five-year period because of the impact of the the pandemic. The, the, this is huge. Uh, so I think what will be very important at the national level uh, is for uh, governments to find ways of involving the private sector and the forward planning for recovery coming out of the pandemic. A lot of governments are already doing this, but it's, it's worth uh, underlining the point uh, because A, that gives the private sector assurance that the concerns and interests they have are, are being uh, heated, but also they can contribute their knowledge uh, to the you know the forward strategy that that governments have. Now, I think there's a a, a couple of other points that one could uh, could make as well. Firstly, there are companies who've done enormously well out of the pandemic. You know, big farmers never seen profits like this, and, and I feel actually very sad for you about that because. If you contrast uh, the huge profits being made by vac vaccine manufacturers uh, with the attitude of Dr. Jonas Salk, who invented the Salk vaccine uh, for uh, oral vaccine for polio, when Salk was asked, would he become a very rich man from this discovery? He said, good God, no, this is a gift to humanity. Wouldn't it be nice to see that spirit now? rather than the profiteering. Uh, secondly, of course, uh, you know, the, those who trade on the internet or provide the platforms have done pretty well. You know, Google, <laughs> roaring away. I, I just say, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates did set you know, a powerful example when they decided to put those vast amounts of money into the foundation. Could we see the same from some of the other zillionaires who've done so well when so many have done so badly. And, and those who say that this has been, you know, two pandemics, a pandemic of disease, but also a pandemic of inequality and right. Uh, so 
I would really appeal to the better nature of those who've seen their share prices and profits go through the roof to say, please put something back in. And when you look at the, the scale of the money being made, you know that uh, some of that going back through foundations could do a tremendous amount of good. The other point I'd make is uh, for business, time to think again about uh, uh, economic and social uh, responsibility and also responsibility to uh, good governance. Uh, one of the bodies I chair is the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, well supported by uh, the world's uh, major oil and gas and, and mineral companies, anti-corruption initiative to ensure you know, that there's not backhand is paid, that money is properly paid to governments for human development. You know, time, time to dust off those agendas and say, you know, could we be doing more uh, to ensure that we, we pay what's due? The G7 broke new ground uh, uh, this year, uh, talking about international tax uh, responsibility. Uh, I think uh, you know, the private sector taking a positive attitude to that rather than a tax dodging one would be very useful as well. Absolutely, G7 made a, a, a very, took a very important first step. Uh, now we, we need to see that materialize, no, no question about it. Listen, let's, let's talk a little bit about Agenda 2030. You and I were deeply involved in the development of that agenda and we, we saw it from the very beginning, the discussions, the broad discussions among civil society, you led that from UNDP, and we saw it materialize. Now, the pandemic has delayed progress towards achieving the sustainable development goals. In fact, one needs to recognize that our path towards Agenda 2030 was slow even before the pandemic, and we were running behind. Now policymakers are discussing recalibrating Agenda 2030 so it better suits the post-COVID environment, the things that you had suggested. Here, Club de Madrid has its own proposal. The organization is calling for a second world summit on social development, a follow-up of the original summit held in 1995 since the organization believes that a new social contract is necessary for progress on all SDGs. How could we give Helen a new impetus to the social, the global social dimension in the framework of the UN and other multilateral institutions? And, and how could a, a second world summit in your view a, contribute to an inclusive COVID-19 recovery? The sustainable development goals certainly need a new impetus because at the moment we're seeing the trends on just about every every single one of those goals move in the, the wrong direction and quite dramatically so. I was very struck uh, last year, you know, maybe two, three, four months into the pandemic when the head of World Food Programme went to the UN Security Council and said we're facing famine of the biblical proportions. And uh, he was forecasting that the, the numbers of those on the, the brink of starvation uh, could blow out to you know, roughly the, the quarter billion mark, which of course is uh, just, just devastating. But yes, the, the extreme poverty figures have gone up for the first time this century because of the 
uh, impoverishment caused by the pandemic being the children out of school uh, issue, making the education uh, goals very, very hard to uh, achieve. Uh, what's uh, happened with the disruption of essential health services like sexual and reproductive health and uh, children's immunizations and so on undoubtedly will, will have an impact uh, on maternal mortality, probably on child uh, mortality, stillbirth rates already, some figures coming through uh, that, that they have, have increased. So we're on the back foot, right? So there needs to be a strategy to get on the front foot. And I think that a second world summit on social development following on from the one in the 90s would be an excellent idea, a time to take stock, re-energize uh, the human development goals uh, within the sustainable development goals, that those covering the basics of impoverishment, hunger, education, uh, healthcare, uh, gender equality, access to water and sanitation, incredibly important, but, but all struggling right now. So if there's not a major push like that, uh, I fear that it will just all seem too hard. And yet it was kind of within grasp when the SDG agenda was was promulgated at the end of 2015. You know, it, it, it was a stretch, but it, it could have been doable. Then we started to run into problems even before uh, the, the pandemic, the rate of progress was just not fast enough. And now we're even in even worse problems. So something that will galvanise world attention, uh, get every government looking for what are the most powerful things that we could do that would try to turn this around. Uh, I think you know, th this kind of initiative is, is very, very timely. And I'm you know, very pleased as a member of the Club for Madrid to, to see it pushing that out there. Because you know, what's the alternative? The alternative is more people starving to death. It's, it's more children who can never go to school and not complete their education. It's more you know, mothers and, and, and children dying. It, it, it's, it's desperate stuff. And, and our world is capable of better than that. We have enough resources for everybody to live uh, with what they need for a basic life, but they're grossly maldistributed. There is no doubt that having a, a set of objectives like the SDGs that look like unachievable, that impossible to achieve, put turn off people, you know, and turn off governments. And, and you said it earlier, you know, universal, universal social protection is estimated to take 1.5% of GDP. That is doable at the world level, you know, but it's just how you... It put a, your emphasis on that, how you really dedicate yourself to that. And, and I remember you were there in the in General Assembly of 2015 when Pope Francis was also there and the Agenda 2030 was a, approved by acclamation. You know, all, you know, it was a record of heads of states and government being there. And it looks so far away that that spirit of, 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 making it happen, of belonging, of, 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 you mentioned that earlier too, of cooperation, of, of understanding that, you know, particularly within a pandemic and after a pandemic, this is a global issue, that regenerating that spirit is, is fundamental. And, and, and I think that the notion of having a 
the governments coming together in a, in a summit, it will be really a, a way to boost uh, energy because otherwise, uh, you know, we could go really much deeper into the hole that we already are in. Yes, we're, we're in a deep hole and there's huge um, geopolitical tensions. And I think that part of the way of digging out of that is to find what we share in common. And in general, uh, if you look at the human development areas of the SDGs, what government is going to disagree with fighting poverty, hunger, uh, with supporting children's education, with you know, access to basic health services, water and sanitation. You know, we actually can find common cause around these things. Uh, so I think also in the, you know, the process of trying to get people to step back, countries to step back from this huge polarization, if we could you know, discover our common humanity in working for these things, that can be positive. One would also hope that that spirit could uh, extend to three other very critical areas at the moment. One's the biodiversity crisis. Another, of course, is the climate crisis. And the third is how we recover from the pandemic. If we could have a, a global agenda that said, OK, we recognise there's a whole lot of things we don't agree with. Uh, and, you know, let, let's face it, you know, I come from a small Western country. I've been a leader. I'm appalled at many of the human, the human rights outrages I see around the world. Um, but I know that if we only talk about that, critical as it is, and it must be raised, then will we ever get to progress on these other things? So as the old saying went, you have to be able to talk and chew gum at the same time. We need global cooperation on human development and the SDGs. We need it on climate. We need it on the future of pandemic preparedness and response and, and the vaccine issues now. We need it on biodiversity. Uh, you know, it, it's very, very urgent. Of course, we can prosecute our other disagreements, hopefully through diplomatic means, but let, it, let those not stop us cooperating in, in the interests of, of the world's people who are you know, on the front lines of poverty, hunger and other crises at the moment. Definitely, you are right, and and um, there are uh, associated to what you just said about polarization. There are other aspects that Club de Madrid and other organizations are concerned, and one of them is the spread of the hate speech online. We have witnessed the destructive impact of incendiary incendiary discourses when terrorist attacks against Tomos took place in March 2019 in Christchurch, a city in your home country, New Zealand. They were both fueled by broad and broadcasted by online plat platforms. This was then followed by remarkably fast action. And two months later, the Christchurch call was adopted by heads of state and tech sector leaders in a commitment to eliminate terrorist and extremist content online. Promoters of disrupted political ideas and hate speech find in online platforms an effective mechanism to really foster their views, leading to polarized societies, at worst, terrorist attacks, as we saw. 
how can we curve the spread of extremist ideas and hate speech while preserving fundamental liberal values such as freedom of expression? What should be the new architecture to achieve that? Well, very, very tough issues because uh, you will have a sort of ultra-libertarian view that says anyone should be able to say whatever they like. I, I don't agree with that. Uh, and I would observe from my own society, and I'm sure it's true of many others, we do have laws in our democratic society uh, which enable uh, broadcast and print content of media uh, to be sanctioned if they go over a line. The sorts of things that are harboured on social media platforms could never be harboured on the mainstream media of our countries. That they would be taken off air, they would be closed down. Uh, it would not be tolerated that you could preach that kind of, of, of hate. Uh, so, you know, the social media platforms, of course, were built on, you know, in a way, the concept of clickbait. The more clicks, you know, the more bigger the audience, uh, the more revenue could be attracted. And so they have only been dragged, kicking and screaming, to accept that they have some responsibility for content. They've, they've tried, as I understand, to say, oh, we're just a platform, we're not responsible for the content. Hang on a minute. <laughs> you provide a platform that, that harbors uh, horrific people like the uh, the mosque uh, murderer uh, in, in, in New Zealand. Uh, so one of the immediate responses to those horrific events, as you say, was the call to action, which was issued by New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, French President Emmanuel Macron and others. And uh, countries and companies undertook to do uh, certain things. Uh, some things will have happened, some, some not. Uh, my foundation, Helen Clark Foundation in New Zealand, put out a, a discussion paper on this, relevant to our context, but actually also more broadly relevant, as to how could you deal with these issues in a democratic society. And we uh, came up with a proposal for uh, bespoke legislation. We said it, it's different from the broadcasting issues. It's different from print media. Uh, what uh, we envisaged was that society like ours could have uh, legislation where we would put in charge um, a, a social media uh, regulator, just as we have for broadcasting standards, uh, for example. Uh, they would not try to write the detailed rules, but they would write the principles for them. And then the companies would be obliged to come up with a code of practice and they would be evaluated against the, uh, the code of practice. So you know, none of it is easy. But the, the key thing is getting social media companies to accept, A, that they have a responsibility, and B, uh, that they must act to enforce it. I must say, as someone who is a, a major user of social media, particularly Twitter, it can be incredibly difficult uh, to get a Twitter site closed down for hate speech. Uh, in fact, you know, sometimes you have to find a way of getting to a higher level in the organisation to get uh, these dreadful people uh, closed down. Uh, let's recall that with the uh, the man who committed the many murders at the mosques, uh, he uh, notified his intentions, broadly speaking, on Facebook, and he 
was broadcasting his his uh, homicidal acts uh, on YouTube as he went about them. And it took quite a while, you know, and every minute counts uh, in these things to get that live streaming on YouTube stopped. And somewhere in the dark web, those videos still circulate. And uh, people who, you know, are themselves, you know, uh, gratuitous viewers of such material can, can tap into it. So I, I think a, a lot to think about for the Facebooks, uh, Twitters, YouTubes, Googles of the world as to what they will do uh, to carry out their social responsibility. Clearly, editorial responsibility should be there, and 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 finding ways to to put frameworks that will uh, make it happen are, are central. Let me let me talk a little bit about uh, migration uh, because migration migrants are often the target of hate speech, uh, and the extremist ideas running among online are also. A, a present in, in, in our political debates. It, how do you see that political leaders could foster positive narratives regarding migration? Because in the end, migration is needed. It wouldn't not go away. And the economies of the world, particularly the aging economies, the countries with aging population need migration. So how can we shift that narrative? Yes, I think the, the critical thing is to create legal avenues for migration because uh, many societies have needs uh, for labour that they can't fill themselves, and that applies to both uh, unskilled and to skilled labour. Uh, often you will see uh, countries you know, say, right, we'll accept people who have you know these tertiary education skills or, or trade skills or whatever, but the reality is that their economies also need uh, workers uh, of much lower skill for essential uh, industries. Uh, and to deny that and to turn your face to the illegal uh, supply routes, of course, is, is, is somewhat hypocritical. Uh, so uh, the best uh, course, I think, is to for countries to look at what are the labor needs, how do we fill them, how do we do it legally, how do we stop the, the, the exploitation. Uh, and I think political leaders do have a responsibility here uh, to be talking frankly about the, the labor market needs and why it's important to be able to accept uh, migrants and, and you know, the terms on which they will be accepted. They shouldn't be coming to poor accommodation, exploitative uh, labor conditions, uh, uh, wages well below the minimum. Uh, of course, when people come for more than just seasonal employment, uh, there should be an expectation that their family can come with them. If you're looking at visas of you know, a year, two or three. Uh, so a lot comes back to political leadership and whether they're you know, prepared to see migrants as human beings with hopes and dreams of their own and able to fulfill them by supporting your economy or whether you're going to use them for you know, populist political ends and look up hate against them. It's a no-brainer what should be done, uh, but we have some way to go, I think, with a, a number of political leaders. Helen, let's switch gears for, for, for a second. And, and if climate change has uh, proven 
and, and action on climate change has proven to be an outstanding mobilizer of the youth. And as its ever-present urgency grows stronger, those with the most at stake, the ones who have more future, show commitment to determining the, the future they want to live. This has led to innovative and creative ways to make their voices here within a system that was not necessarily designed to include them. In fact, it was not designed at all to include them. One could also argue that this has happened with women also who are not necessarily in the decision-making to the level they should, who throughout most history have been withheld from the power and the opportunities of change, as well as from the autonomy to shape policy-making. Why does it, it takes, it is so hard to include both women and youth in political decision-making, in making decisions that are better? Why is it so difficult to allow them to be involved in power in the end? Well, I think the issues um, concerning women and those concerning youth involvement are uh, they're, they're different from each other. So if we dissect them, of course, politics was traditionally a men's game. You know, when the vote first came to societies, it didn't come to women. You know, women were somehow inferior uh, people who, who weren't thought to have the uh, capacity or ability to, to do these things, or men wanted to keep them in the place in, in, in the kitchen uh, and minding the children and so on. And women had to fight very hard for the vote. And my country was the first in the world where women successfully gained the right to vote after a big campaign. And when you think about it, in 1893, for an all-male parliament to vote for women to, to have the right to vote was, was quite remarkable. But they didn't actually then uh, vote for women to be able to stand for parliament, by the way. They, <laughs> that took till 1919. So it was a, a two-tier uh, process. Uh, but off the back of universal suffrage in New Zealand, of course, you know, many others were coming along uh, after that. And then uh, as uh, colonialism was, was you know, able to be thrown off in, in the parts of the world where that had been uh, dominant, the constitutions that were written gave women the right to vote. So that became established as a universal basic, basic right. Uh, but then enabling women to, uh, to be selected and elected uh, to a country's parliaments. That was much more an uphill uh, battle. Uh, when I first uh, entered the New Zealand Parliament in 1981, uh, we as, as women uh, made up uh, roughly uh, 9% of the parliament. 9%! You know, often over the years have spoken with women uh, in developing countries where the numbers of women are quite low in decision-making, I say, take heart. <laughs> when I entered Parliament, <laughs> there were eight of us out of 92. I mean, it, it was pathetic. And that was double the numbers of the election before. Uh, so it, these things only change because women fight and fight and fight for them. And they you know, enlist men as allies, that, that, that's critical. Uh, and, you know, in New Zealand now, we've had female prime ministers for, for rather more than half the last 20, 23, 24 years. 
it, it's become established. Not that you know the women prime ministers don't come in for a particular kind of, of criticism and hostility. That that there's still that misogyny around. But yeah, everyone accepts that on the you know balance of probability you have a woman prime minister here about half the time. Uh, the numbers of women in parliament are hovering at about 48% now. Uh, in the cabinet, around 40%. So, you know, it, it, it can be done, but it's not done without years and years of pushing and advocacy and women stepping forward to say, yes, I'm up for this and building the alliances to, uh, to do it. Now, with young people, I see the issues as a little bit different because many societies uh, still uh, are more deferential to the views of older people than of younger people. Uh, I, I recall visits I've made around the world where uh, people engaged with youth sector have said, you know, young people don't get taken any notice of here. Well, if that attitude persists, it persists at our peril. Uh, we can think, you know, easily of the many developing countries where the, the population that's under 25, you know, could be 75% of the population. Almost certainly 66% in many in many cases. It's a huge youth population, and if you are going to exclude that population from meaningful involvement uh, in the politics of the country, uh, you're going to have a lot of alienated people who feel like they can never really enter this political system and have have impact. And I am one who argues for entering the formal political system. Now I've watched the uh, climate crisis. You know, school strike and associated movements with a with a lot of interest, and there's no doubt they've had they've had impact. But what I would urge uh, the youth have been involved in that, but often you know young youth, uh, the adolescents, uh, still school students, is that in the end some of you have to step up out of the the mobilisations and you have to enter the political system because the decisions that governments made are made by those who who are elected make them. And unless you get uh, decision makers who are more sympathetic to your point of view, uh, then you can't change the policies no matter how many mass mobilizations you have. Uh, so, you know, my, my view is that young people have to force their way into the political system, just like women force their way into the political system and say, we're here, we demand a voice, we're going to run for parliament. I used to think that you know, probably it wasn't that sensible to go into a legislature before your 30s. I've changed my mind on that now. I think young people should come in from the time that they should seek uh, to be represented in the parliaments. It doesn't have to be a lifelong uh, commitment. People may come and go much more than they did in, in my generation in politics where you went in. I went in at 31 and stayed for 27 and a half years. You know, the, the Millennials, the new generations coming forward probably won't feel like that. They'll come and want to make their mark and move on to other things, but they must get engaged formally. Otherwise, we'll always be outside shouting with placards and not having uh, enough of the impact that we want. There is nothing like engaging and being part of the development of, of uh, new ideas and new policies. Helen, we are pretty much hitting uh, the end of our conversation. Let me get a little bit more personal here. Throughout your career of public service, there have been many times at which you broke last ceilings. You were talking about that recently. And there are times we, where you have struggled to break them. 
such as in your bid to become UN Secretary General. What will be your message to young women who are now attempting to break their own glass ceilings in, in different parts of the world? Well, I often say that, you know, the nice thing about New Zealand is that although it was tough to break in and break through to the top, in the end it was achievable. Uh, it was achievable through uh, you know, building networks and support and you know, putting a lot of hard yards, having your family, your spouse back you. Um, it, it could be done. And I, I think that's the spirit we have to go in with. It, with. You can't do these things on your own. You, you must have support. Uh, so think about you know, the team you need around you to, to take your aspirations forward. And don't take no for an answer. You know, see that empty seat at that table, see your name on it, you know, aim for the top. Chances are you know, more of us will get there than, than we might have thought. On the, the UN Secretary General, uh, look, I, I'm actually very optimistic that next time this position will go to a woman from the Latin American and Caribbean region. No one can deny that it is that region's turn to supply the Secretary General. I think there's a, a lot of you know, feeling now that surely the 10th UN Secretary General can't be another man. Uh, we know that the Latin American and Caribbean region has outstanding women who could fill that job. Uh, so that that's where I'm going to be putting my voice when the, when the job comes up uh, again, as it will at the end of the current Secretary General's uh, term. And, uh, you know, I'm really hopeful. I'm really hopeful that that woman who makes history then will, you know, create the way for, you know, half the time uh, the Secretary General of the UN to be, to be female, just as we expect that in New Zealand politics. Thank you, Helen. Um, it has been, as usual, a pleasure speaking with you. We have now reached out the end of this podcast, and I would like to remind you all that there will be a fourth po podcast in the series Democracy in Practice, which we will discuss sustainable development with the former president of Chile, Ricardo Lagos. It has been a pleasure to talk to you, Prime Minister Clark. Thank you.